Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, we're so glad that you're joining us here today, whether in Ajax or Bowmanville or Porperi or at a cottage somewhere else around the world. Welcome as we continue in this amazing summer series based on Jesus. Um, as I shared last week, um, my wife and I were up in the Muskokas. If you're watching somewhere else in the world, that's just north of Toronto, a group of lakes. And our kids were at camp, and we actually had a week off together. And so my wife said, let's just do some things together. She said, let's go to a driving range. I said, sure, I haven't been to one, I don't think, ever. That will be an experience. And so we went to a driving range, and we went for a few days. The first day, I hit nothing at all, and that was wonderfully embarrassing. My wife did really well. By day two, I started getting better. Day three, day four. I was doing really well. So it was a good experience. It was fun and it was in 35 degree heat. That wasn't so great. But other than that, it was fine. So the second last swing that I took, something happened. Right under beneath, underneath my arm, something shifted in my body. And I knew it was wrong. Now, I presumed I'd pulled a muscle I'd never used before because you can tell this athletic body. Anyway, uh, so I was like, well, obviously I've pulled a muscle, but I kept getting worse and worse. So I went to a chiropractor a week later, and she said, you've dislocated a rib. It's actually quite serious. So I went home and told my wife, and she looked at me, and she started laughing in my face. Uh, she thought that was hilarious, that my first attempt at golf and my last attempt at golf uh, is I've dislocated a rib. And so uh, she mocked me and I cried and she thought it was great. So I came to the church because I needed solace and comfort because my wife had given me none. And so I thought that um, my co-lead pastor Dave would comfort me and would use the gift of mercy and support me in my time of need. So I came in and I said, hey Dave, uh, you won't believe it, I was at a driving range and he went, he literally almost spit his coffee and he said, I'm sorry, what? I said, I was at a driving range. He said, you were hitting golf balls? I said, yes. He said, so well done, little boy. And um, that was really encouraging. And uh, I said, well, you won't believe, though, what happened in the middle of it. I actually pulled a rib. And he stopped and he looked at me. And he also started mocking me and thought it was hilarious because he said, never would I ever think in my life I would declare that John Thompson has a sports injury. And so he thought it was fantastic. And so he went home to his wife and said, Jen, I have news from the church. Something very significant has taken place. Uh, and then he said, he literally said in whispered tones, he said, something has happened to John Thompson. And she is like, oh no, has there been a moral failing? Is he, is he in trouble? Has something happened? He's like, no, he has a sports injury. Well, she started laughing and mocking and crying. So I cried all week in my soul, but everyone else mocked me and it's been great. Anyway, don't do golf. No, no, listen. Here's what I thought about, because I've been living with this dislocated rib for about two and a half weeks, and I've been just thinking about the ongoing numbing pain that's there. Every time I move, I feel the rib. Every time I try going to sleep, it's uncomfortable. And every time I go to sneeze, I literally brace my body because I don't want that experience. But the, t the pain never goes away because my rib at this moment is not fully where it should be and is slowly getting better. But I'm constantly reminded of it being in the wrong location every time I move. You're like, well, John, what's the connection? Here it is. The more and more you listen to Jesus, the more and more you honestly listen to Jesus, the more and more uncomfortable you become. 
the more and more we all begin to realize whether you are secular or, or mindful and spiritual or fundamentally religious, that we all begin to realize we're all a little dislocated because the more Jesus speaks, the more pain he causes and the more uncomfortability he causes because he's uncompromising with who he is and what he claims. And so, like I said in week one in this series, we're going to walk through eight amazing statements, images, visual aids given to Jesus or proclaimed by Jesus. And if you're a seeker or, or, or a skeptic or a cultural Christian or you belong to another religion, by the end of the summer, you'll know in fullness what Jesus claimed about himself and you'll be able to say yes or no in a very informed way. For many others of us that know Jesus, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, we will see him more, understand him more, hopefully love him more, be more thankful, be more inspired, be, be more faith-filled and hopeful. Seven times in the Gospel of John, the phrase I am was used, and then an image was attached to it. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But before these amazing, uh, dangerous, possibly blasphemous, inappropriate statements, John started us in a different place. Do you remember? It's right at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John 1.1. In the beginning at creation was the word. And the word was with God, so beside God, and yet the word was God. Jesus was with God at the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light for all of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus was the true light that gives light to everyone and was coming into the world. And remember week one, we started feeling that sort of uncomfortability when we really started listening to what Jesus meant? When John writes true light, he doesn't just mean genuine. In the original language, it means one and only true authentic light. In other words, the implication is there is no other true light, no other religious leader, no philosophy leader, no psychologist, no teacher, no educator, no government official, no military commander actually has the ability to do, to reveal, to bring light in a dark world. Only Jesus is able to do this. This is an exclusive declaration about the uniqueness of Jesus, and in a multicultural, pluralistic world that we live in, this is profoundly offensive unless it's true. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which were his own. His own did not even receive him. I mean, remember, Jesus is a Jewish guy. He was born among the Jewish people, and of course, God had chosen the Jews to be his people given them prophecies and, and given, him the, given them the Old Testament and the prophets and God picked them so the rest of us who are not Jewish and ethnic origin could actually see there is only one true living God. And yet even when he came to his own, the natural home for light, they rejected the light overall. But it's not just their story of darkness, it's ours too. John 3.19, this is the verdict. This is what God has declared. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. So John says Jesus is the light of the world. 
He's the only light, the only genuine light, and the implication is that all human beings, secular, spiritual, mindful, and religiously devout, are all in spiritual darkness. We cannot see, and honestly, most of us don't really want to see. But notice so far, Jesus has not claimed this title for himself. And then we come to the story in John 8. If you've got a Bible, virtual or physical, you can turn there now. In John chapter 8, we come to the moment where Jesus claims this as his own. And where he does this, by the way, and why he does this, and when he does this matters so very much. He chooses to claim that he's the light of the world, right on the temple grounds, in the middle of Jerusalem, at the heart of the Jewish faith. I love what Chuck Swindoll, that now older pastor, thought about at this moment. Jesus was a radical individual a most imposing personality, not intimidating, not frightening, oh, but imposing, formidable, unafraid. He enters the temple to find the people in spiritual darkness and thirsting for divine truth. Oh, hold on a second. Jesus walks into the temple, the heart of the Jewish faith, the people who've got the Ten Commandments, and he still presumes everyone there is still blind and in darkness. Wow. In one of the busiest places in the temple called the Court of the Women, we'll talk about that later, Jesus speaks to the crowd gathering to worship, to offer sacrifices, to give their money and tithes, to worship the one true living God. And there in this moment, there are men and there is women and there are Jews and there are non-Jews that follow the Jewish faith. There are the religious scholars doing their jobs. There are the pastors of the day walking around. There's the temple administrators and all the normal people all doing the business of religion. And Jesus... It says in John 8, 12, stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. First, again, the claim is shocking, offensive, rib-moving. Not a light, not one light. I am the only light of the world. I have the power, Jesus says, to banish darkness in any family. I have the power to walk into any ethnic group and deal with that ethnic issue that's actually affecting that cultural family. I have the ability to actually undo darkness in any family, any situation, any government. My ability is universal. It is all-powerful. And the implication, again, is that we are already in darkness, and we all need light. Think again where he's saying this, the Jewish temple. Every single person hearing him would believe they already know the light. I mean, they're religious people. They're, they're the chosen people out of all the nations on the earth. They actually have the Bible. God's presence is literally a few blocks over, literally in the temple. But Jesus says, oh, the only light that you need comes through me. Have you ever thought about light? Light doesn't come from human beings. It doesn't matter whether it's the sun or, or, or a flashlight or something you light on a fire. There is no inherent literal light in human beings. Light always comes from another source. And so that is what Jesus is saying. All of humanity is in inherent darkness. And you need light to show up in your life at 80, at 60, at 45, at 12, at 19. You need light to show up that will never come from you. And if you want that, you follow me and darkness will leave. Well, then we've got to ask ourselves a question. Because I am the light of the world is a great bumper sticker. It's very metaphorical. But what in the world does it really mean? I mean, really. 
And actually, a greater question is this. Well, if, if Jesus, you're here to banish darkness, what darkness are you here to banish? I mean, we all have our own views of what is bad and good, so if you're here to deal with something, you tell us what you think is good and what you think is dark. Well, if you read the scriptures, the Bible, the very first description of darkness that you find cover to cover is a description of Satan. The power of a human's, whether you believe in his existence or not, does not change his existence. He exists. Paul, speaking to Christians later, would write this in Colossians 1.13. Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. Uh, again, you're going to feel a little uncomfortable at this moment. The, the implication here is anyone who has not accepted Anyone who has not embraced, anyone who has not encountered Jesus, the light of the world, is still then under the cruel, unloving domination and dominion of Satan, whether they believe in him or not. What the Bible presents is a human community enslaved by supernatural evil, under the authority, the mastery, the control, the command, the sway, the jurisdiction, the sovereignty, the leadership, the influence of darkness. I mean, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age or the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see what? The light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, some of you are sitting here today and say, I, I actually want to believe and I don't know. I keep trying and I can't. Correct, you can't. You actually don't have the ability inside of you even to say Yes. There, there is a darkness and a blindness that's real, but it's not just sort of this otherness. See, the Bible pulls no punches and totally disagrees with modern society's diagnostic view of our world that we're all go born good and society makes us bad. No, no, the Bible says we're all born into sin and we have a natural inclination towards us and self and pride. And so actually out of us comes deeds of darkness. If you want to know what they are, you could just read the Ten Commandments and reverse them. I love what Paul did talking about this to another church in Ephesians 5. He says, speaking to Christians, not to non-Christians, to us who are, who are followers of Jesus, but among you there must not even be a hint, whoa, of sexual immorality, not even a whiff of it, or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. There should be no obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure. You can bet your life on this. No immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person, by the way, is an idolater, they've placed those things above God, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Oh, let no one deceive you with empty, hollow words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. What are deeds of darkness? Well, some of it has to do with sexuality, I mean, God made sex. It's his invention. He's fine with it, but he put boundaries around it. And sexual immorality is the phrase in Greek, porneia, where we get our modern word pornography from, which is a catch-all phrase for all the things the Bible says no, no to. And it's not, by the way, saying we're not tempted or struggled. This isn't even a conversation about orientation. It's when we as human beings justify or affirm or act out sexually against what Scripture says and say God's just fine with this and I'm fine with it too. Deeds of darkness. And it's not just sex, it's greed. I mean, this is what Pastor Dave taught us in the Ten Commandments. Coveting, which is the foundation, uh, sort of the door, it's the gate, gateway sin to all the others. 
Greed in human beings always says, I want more than I have. I should have more than I do. I, I, I should need this. I do need this. I'll do anything I can to get it. Actually, I can go where I want, even if the Bible says I cannot go. Darkness. Oh, and then there's foolish speech. I'm not talking about just humor. It's, not, it's okay to have a good laugh. This is different. By the way, if you want to see how much deeds of darkness there are in our culture, just go on Twitter. Just go on Facebook. Just go on Netflix sometimes. Just, just, just go on Instagram and listen to how people talk about each other. Do you know this week I was reading in Canada now, one out of four people in our country hate someone else that has a different political view than them. Not disagree, now hates them. Dirty language. Foolish talk. The very first act in the Bible is God spoke the universe into being. There's power in our words. The phrase unwholesome talk in Greek here comes from the idea of spoiled fish and rotten fruit or stones that are crumbling. And it's a brilliant metaphor. It says that our words can literally smell up a place, rot in someone's soul, and crumble their identity in a minute. You want to know what the deeds of darkness are? Here they are. Blasphemy, rotten talk, slander, sexual talk, lying, Murmuring, arrogant, boasting, cursing, spreading rumors, lies, innuendo, gossip. One person said, we don't want pornography in the bedroom. We don't want pornography in our mind. And we shouldn't want pornography out of our mouth. If you really want to talk about Jesus making us uncomfortable, listen to what Jesus said. In Matthew 12, 36, I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have ever spoken. Anyone concerned? For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. That means your Instagram and Twitter feed will be on the day of judgment evaluated. How you doing? Of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, impure greedy person, that's idolatry, will ever have eternal life. And then we're stuck going, well, oh my goodness, like if that's the standard, I'm done. How about you? I mean, I look at that list and I look at my life, pastor or not, I'm done. And then you say, well, okay, well, if money and power and sex and sexual rights actually are where we fall down all the time and, and I've broken this all the time, is God forgiving? Is there, is there any way home? Well, of course there is, but make, just make no mistake, eternity's at stake in this room. Eternity's at stake in the GTA right now, around the world. Oh, you might have the title Christian, but if there's no evidence of repentance or confession or struggle, do you have light in your life? Actually, you want to have a real heart-to-heart -heart moment? Our culture perpetually, our families, our psychologists, our teachers, our university, listen, anywhere you go, all our culture continually says light is darkness and darkness is light. Isaiah says, woe to those who call good evil and evil good who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do you now begin to feel the power and the promise and the pinch of Jesus? So then you go, well, if that's the standard and if I believe in it at all, is there anyone strong enough or pure enough or enlightening enough or convincing enough or helpful enough or powerful enough to show us our darkness or to break our darkness or to convince us that what we think is actually light is darkness or free us from the darkness? I mean, can anyone remove us from the clutch of darkness? Is there anyone who could touch our eyes so we're no longer blind? Is there anyone who's loving enough or profound enough not just to change our thinking but to change our souls. And Jesus comes and says, well, of course. I am the light 
of the world. I'm the only one that has the power to free you, truly. Love you? Yep. Forgive you? Absolutely. Restore you? Totally possible. Jesus says, whoever follows me, no matter your age, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender, no matter your background, if you follow me, walk after me, trust me, if you allow me to own you in the right sense, to be marked by me, you will no longer walk in darkness any longer. Anyone want to say amen? amen? Ah, but when Jesus says this matters as much that he did say it. See, Jesus says this for a reason in this moment. And most of us sitting here would have no clue why he said it when he said it. Listen to another who gives us the context. If you've grown up in church, you've probably missed this your whole Christian life. Jesus' claim that he was the light of the world happened on the day following a spectacular nighttime ceremony called the illumination of the temple which took place in the temple treasury before four massive golden candelabras that were topped with huge torches. It was said that the candelabras were as tall as the highest walls in the temple and that the top of each one of the candelabras was mounted with a great bowl that each held 65 liters of oil. There was a ladder for each candelabra, and when the evening of the celebration came, young healthy priests would carry <coughs> up the great bowls to fill the bowls with the oil, and then they'd light the wicks. Eyewitnesses time and time again tell that these huge flames leapt from these torches and illuminated, ready, not just the temple grounds, but actually multiple accounts tell us that the whole city of Jerusalem was lit up by this fire. Remember, at this point in history, there's no invented lights like we have them today. And so they light these four candelabras, the whole city of Jerusalem at the middle of night is now glowing with fire. And Jesus claims that he's the light of the world. Well, this was done in the temple treasury the following morning, right after this celebration, with the charred torches still in place. And Jesus lifts up his voice and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the life, light of life. There could, he writes, no scarcely be a more emphatic way to announce one of the great supreme truths of Jesus' existence. Jesus was saying, in effect, the pillar of fire that came between you and the Egyptians, the cloud that was filled with fire that guided you day and night in the wilderness and illuminated the night and enveloped the tabernacle, the glorious cloud, what we call the Shekinah glory of God, that filled Solomon's temple, that was me. If you're not seeing it yet, let me bring it home for you. Jesus is claiming to be God. Remember when Moses met God at a burning bush and the bush was not consumed but the fire was there? He said, that's a weird sight. He goes over and suddenly realizes this is supernatural, takes off his shoes and realizes God is speaking out of the what? Fire, God spoke. And Moses says, what should I call you? And God says, I am that I what? Am. And now Jesus stands up and says, I am the light that you used to know about of the world. I am God, not a prophet, not a religious leader, not a brilliant guru, not a self-help prophet. No, no, I am God. So Jesus has now spoken. The charred embers behind him. And we are now going to see that most people will not accept what he just claimed. But Jesus isn't going to move on. He's not just to agree to disagree. He's not going to back down because what he has said is true. Well, there's some pastors walking by at this moment. 
And they're very concerned about what he's just stated because they know the implications. And they've decided not to back down. And they won't agree to disagree. And they're going nowhere. And so they confront him. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Just because you decide that you're the light of the world, isn't that nice for you? Just because you're claiming to be the fullness of God, the same God that actually met Moses, are you joking me? Listen, your word is not enough. You could be a liar. You could be mentally deranged, unstable. You could be politically motivated. Uh, You could be the devil. You could be outright false. See, your word is not enough. Why? Well, in legal terms and in religious terms in the Jewish faith, Deuteronomy had a rule. Deuteronomy 19.15. You must produce two or three witnesses for something to even be validated. So Jesus, you be real careful. You've already claimed something that actually could give you the death penalty in our culture, and you've got no legal grounds. You can't just be your own witness. So you better produce something else. Well, watch Jesus meek and mild respond. Oh, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony, it's valid. Whoa. For I know where I come from, and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I'm coming from or where I'm going. Thanks so much. Sit down. Sure, I know my claims have no legal validity, but that doesn't mean what I'm saying is false or I'm a liar. Actually, I'm not like other people. Now, listen to what I'm about to say. Imagine the arrogance of this if this is not true. I'm not like other people. I'm not like other religious teachers. I'm actually not like anyone else with power. I'm different, and I'm more important than you and every person who works in this temple, and actually mm, everyone who's ever existed. What? Oh, I can validate myself because of who I am, and I know where I've come from. Oh, where have I come from? I've come from heaven. I existed before I was born. Actually, I've always been. Actually, the other witness that you want, it's God the Father. He's got my back. So are we done? Jesus has already said this to another group of pastors a few weeks earlier. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mentioned it to you that you might be saved. And the Father who sent me himself testifies concerning me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he has sent. At this moment, Jesus looks at this group of sincere, but sincerely wrong religious leaders and says, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. Can you, can you, are you feeling the uncomfortability of the moment? He says to religious authorities, to those who have the right education, the people support, years of schools and respect, who've memorized the Old Testament, who try to obey the Ten Commandments, who invented 714 plus laws to try to honor God, and Jesus comes around and goes, "Mm, yeah, it doesn't count. All your attempts, weak, and by the way, your evaluation, fundamentally human. I have an eternal perspective, and actually everything I see is perfect, and what you see is broken. If I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. God, the creator, the great I am, he's got my back. I'm not here alone in this conversation. Actually, I'm never alone in any conversation uh, because God, the Father, and I are co-equal and actually we're one. Uh, He's with me. He's not with you. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. The other witness is my father. So they said, well, well, then just who's your father? I mean, they're still not getting it, right? Like, and he's like, oh, oh, you don't understand. You, 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 think, you think that I'm bringing my, my dad, Joseph. No, no, you're, you're missing this. You actually don't know me, and, and you don't know my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. Let, let me just remind you again. 
Uh, Jesus is saying this to religious leaders who've done their best to follow God. And as a 32-year-old uh, from nowhere in Israel person, he's saying, actually, I'm God. You know, the Jewish people, especially the religious leaders, prided themselves on knowing God because they weren't like Romans or Greeks or barbarians who were idol worshipers and do all this stuff. I mean, and Jesus comes along and says, actually, the God that you think you know, you don't. Actually, the original verse reads like this, you know my father as little as you know me. Here's the implication. Now you're going to get real uncomfortable. Your rib's going to move a lot. <laughs> Jesus says, if you don't know me, you've never met God ever. Uh, hold on. Let me say that to a Canadian global uh, multicultural audience. If you do not know Jesus, you've, you actually don't know God. So the most sincere religious person on earth who's not a Christian doesn't know him. That's the implication of what Jesus is claiming at this moment. Now, where is this happening again? Oh, this is happening right in the temple grounds. And, and, and where? Well, look, it says, He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offering was put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, I found it this week. This is called the court of the women. You're like, this is a history lesson. No more is going on. In the court of the women, this is where women could come publicly and worship God. This is also where all the giving for all the Jews was taking place. There were 13 large sort of chests that were in the forms of trumpets. And everyone, every Jew on earth would come and give their money and their offerings here. The commanded ones, the tithes, and the love offerings. And so this is the only environment where women and men, Jews and non-Jews, could all mix in one environment to worship God and serve God. This is the most accessible point in the temple. And Jesus shows up among Jews and non-Jews who are Jewish followers and when women and men and kids and in the most accessible place declares just so you all know I'm the light of the world well it goes from bad to worse because Jesus keeps going and he won't stop and it reads like this at the end of the chapter if I glorify myself my glory means nothing my father who you claim listen to the language this is on the temple to religious people to religious authorities my father who you claim as God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, oh, I know him. I, if I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. What? But I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. You're not even 50 years old, they said. And you've seen our father Abraham? Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, what? I am, oh. At this they pick up stones to stone him to death, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Why did they pick up stones to stone him? Because it was illegal to call yourself God. It's the sin of blasphemy, and the penalty for that was death. Here's what we all need to understand. You cannot just say Jesus is a prophet. You cannot just see that, like he's equal with a bunch of other religious. He claims to be the creator of heaven and earth. He claims to be the light of the world, and the word made flesh, and the bread of life. Either he is or he's not. You cannot make Jesus in your own image. You either say he is a liar, he's Satan, he's delusional, or he's real. There is no to sit on in the middle. And so many of us want to make Jesus what we want and love quoting him on Twitter to back a political view. No, this is the Jesus of Scripture, not the one you want to invent. So why did Jesus come? 
Well, Jesus came to save the world. Jesus came to show us who God is. Jesus came to give us forgiveness. Jesus came to provide a way back out of our darkness. But do not ever believe that Jesus is going to bring unity. Jesus always divides families. Jesus always divides friends. Because his claims are too exclusive and dangerous. What did Jesus say about himself? Listen to this. For judgment I've come into this world. So that the blind will see and those who see will become what? Blind. He's God. He's the light of the world. He's the only light. He is the only person who can forgive you of your sins. He is the only person that has the power to banish Satan for real. He's the only person to bring someone back from the dead because he's the only one who died and did come back from the other side. He's the only person who can satisfy your deepest needs. Money, sex, and power, though good gifts in themselves, will not satisfy any person's soul. Jesus, his bread, it's going to satisfy you. Darkness is burned away by his light every single time. When people were like, well, what should we do? How do we get God to get, how do we get his attention? Remember when he was talking about the bread of life back in John 6? What must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus' answer cuts underneath every religious undertone on earth. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent, period. Nothing more, believe in him. So for you who are seekers and skeptics and you're struggling and you're trying to understand, you're most welcome. But we want to be honest with you. Jesus, this is Jesus. What do you do with him? Will you say, yes, I want his light, and yes, I need his bread, and yes, I believe he's the son of God and God in flesh, and yes, he's the only way home, or do you say no? Your decision has eternal ripple consequence, but the point is, at least you know who he is and what he claims. For some of us, we are followers of Jesus, not because we're better, not because we're more religious, just because we said yes. What does the Lord say to us? In other words, let me put it a different way. How do you keep walking in the light once you've already encountered the light in the first place? Well, here's the first thing on this beautiful summer Sunday. We who are followers of Jesus sincerely, not by ethnicity, not because our family is Christian, we who have said yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord, been baptized in his name, the very first thing is holiness. Remember I started talking about the deeds of darkness in Ephesians? I love what Paul says when he continues. He says in Ephesians 5, 8, you'll see the connection now. Everyone ready? For you once were in darkness, Christian, but now you're the light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then here's the most important phrase. Find out what pleases Jesus. Find out what pleases him. Some sexual stuff is not allowed. Greed is never allowed. Bad talking is never allowed. Idolatry, no. We have no right to put anything in front of love. We choose to struggle as Christians to say no to what we want and actually what we love in our hearts because the love of God is better than what we love in our flesh. 
We walk in the light and with the light by saying no to darkness. Yeah, we struggle. Yes, we fall. But don't ever be a Christian that says, well, it's not that bad. Or actually, you know, it's not darkness. No, call it for what it is. Sin is sin. But here's the good news for us who already have encountered the light. That Jesus is eternally forgiving. John would later write in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, this is written to Christians, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from some or all, all unrighteousness. Anyone want to say amen to that verse? How do you keep walking in the light? Personal holiness. We don't do personal holiness to get God's attention. We don't act like good Christians so God likes us more or suddenly we're saved. We're never saved by what we do. We say no to what we want and desire that is sinful because we love God more and we want to reflect the light that Jesus is. Personal holiness. When no one is looking, who are you? That is where the light needs to shine the strongest. But it's not just that we've encountered the light, and it's not just that we have to walk in this profound light. We also are called to show our culture what light is. How do we do that? Well, you know what's amazing? When Jesus was giving the manifesto of our movement, it's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did something again just profoundly shocking. He looked at his followers and he said, everyone listen, if you're not looking at me, could you just look up for a second? Everyone needs to take a look at this moment. Put, just put your Facebook down for a second. I, he says, I am the light of the world. Then he turns around to us broken, messed up people and says, you are the light of the world. What? Oh, he says, just so you know, when you encounter me, you become the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We don't do good works to get saved. Religion says, do lots, God loves you then. Christianity says you can't do enough. You're saved by Jesus. You do good works after you've been saved to show the world the love of God. What's a good work? And by the way, this is a very interesting verse. In this verse, the, work, the word for works in the original language is kalos. It doesn't just mean a common work. It means a very beautiful, exquisite thing. So what is the beautiful, light-giving, exquisite things we are called to do as Christians? Number one, we need to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as a way back home. Every time you proclaim that, that's a good work. Every single time we as Christians forgive someone that really hurt us, that is a good work showing the world that bitterness and racism and injustice does not win because actually Jesus has forgiven us and he's stronger. Every single time we love someone who's marginalized, every time we love our neighbor in Jesus' name, every single time we're looking out for the poor, every single time we do anything, serving in a church, serving outside of church in our spiritual gifts, everything we do in the name of Jesus shows the world a good work. And when we do good works, light shows up in what? Darkness. And it's not our light, by the way. Dr. Barnhouse, years ago, a famous old Texan preacher said, it's like the moon. Jesus is the sun and we're the moon. It's not our light. It's his light reflecting off us so people can keep looking past the moon back to the sun. See, when good works are done in a church, it's not about exalting the name of that church or exalting the name of that ministry or that pastor or that community. When real good works are done, when we serve people, even our enemies, they will what? Glorify your Father in heaven. So in other words, why do we do good works? Why do we become and reflect the light that Jesus has given us? As one person said, I love it, the effect is not to improve and enlighten society. 
Rather, it begins the glorification of God by those outside the community called the church. For some of you, you have to wrestle down Jesus and see if you say yes or no. Because Jesus will offend your religiosity, your spirituality, your mindfulness, your nice Canadianisms, and he will affect everything that you are. But if you embrace him, you'll be profoundly changed. All of us who are Christians are called to live a countercultural, light-oriented life that says, I will obey the Lord sexually, I will obey the Lord with my money, I will make sure that I'm always watching for greed, I will not be involved in foolish talk online, on social media, in my heart, or over coffee or a beer with anyone, I will not do it, because that is darkness and I've been saved from that. And not only that, we will be continually marked by good deeds, whether we're excited by them or not. Now I need to stop and end with this, and then we're going to pray. In between services here at Ajax today, we were praying in the back, just getting ready as you were coming to this service in this community. And as we were praying, the Holy Spirit said to me that a pastor was coming here today, I don't know who you are, from another church. So I need to say something to you, whoever you are. Because when we were praying, this was very strong. So here's what the Lord says to you, because you're not expecting this, I don't think. The Lord says to you today, in this moment, he sees your good deeds. He's seen your hard work as a pastor. You're discouraged and you're not sure if it's worth it. And the Lord of heaven and earth says to you, he sees it and he'll honor you for what you've done. And we need to take a moment. I don't know who the person is. Let's applaud and thank them for their work, whoever they are. Very much so. Really matters. Uh, This is not just a religious moment in this church. God is alive in this church, and he's continually doing profound things. Could we stand, and could we just respond in a few different ways? Number one, Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you, and we pray for our friends and our neighbors and our guests who have not yet met Jesus. And we just ask, Lord, like, would you cut through the darkness and the blindness, and may they embrace you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Second of all, Lord, we're dust, we're broken, we're sinful, we struggle all the time. But here's our prayer again. We prayed this through the whole Ten Commandments series. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit. And would you profoundly bring light into our personal lives. Just help us, Lord. Help us to be light and pure people. And lastly, Lord, would you empower our everyday good works in Jesus' name. Using our spiritual gifts. Praying into environments to change. Loving the unlovely. Forgiving others. Would you remind us that the good works are evidence of light. And it's actually a great privilege to be salt and light in our dark world. Thank you, God, that you didn't leave us alone. Thank you, called us out of darkness. Thank you for the work of Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you for the hope we have. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Help us to be a faithful community of Jesus followers in our community and beyond. We pray this in the name of God the Father who called us, God the Son who died and rose again, in the name of the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.